Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, October 13th. Derek Van Riper here with Steven Nesbitt. A lot going on in the baseball world. A great first day back for me, Steven. I'm excited. Welcome, DDR. We're glad to have you back. I've been sitting in the host seat here on Fridays uh, for a while with Keith Law, but this week we, we kicked Keith off to Arizona and said, DVR, can you take the reins again? The Arizona Fall League is wonderful, so I'm looking forward to reading Keith's stuff from there. I know he's got at least one piece up already, so I'll be digging into that shortly. But focusing on the big leagues primarily in this episode because the Philadelphia Phillies have eliminated the Atlanta Braves again in four games. And there was a lot of drama in game four. There was a lot of drama leading into game four. And I'm glad my first day back on the pod didn't have to cover all of that. I'm grateful for your help while I was gone, but also for Eno and Britt on 3-0 having to uh, discuss the the Arcia clubhouse gate. And there's been even more fallout since then. But frankly, I want to focus on the field. And a ton has changed for the Phillies just in the last couple of months. I mean, Nick Castellanos, who was pretty cold at the end of the season, had another two-homer night, back-to-back nights where he did that. No one's ever done that in the postseason before. Trey Turner, now beloved in Philadelphia. Who would have thought? If you go back to May, June, I mean, this was a guy that fans were so frustrated with because Phillies gave him a big bucket of money and it wasn't happening right away. He's looked like Trey Turner for the better part of four-plus months now, so that's exciting to see. We had a, a scare with Bryce Harper's elbow and that just kind of awkward collision at first base. No malintent whatsoever, but for a brief moment, I wondered if Harper had actually had a serious re-injury of the right elbow that he had Tommy John surgery on. So all of that wrapped into a back-and-forth exciting series that uh, – you know, again, had tons of drama. And my, my first question for you about all of this, there was a moment where I think everybody inside Citizens Bank ballpark thought that Ronald Acuna had hit a go-ahead home run. I wasn't at the stadium, of course, but seeing some of the reactions from the writers who were, they described the silence as the ball was in the air and how how strange that was. It sounded like everybody in that park thought that Ronald Acuna Jr. had hit a go-ahead home run in the seventh inning until Johan Rojas caught that ball just in front of the wall. Yeah, man. Like, talk about the the importance of a couple plays on the warning track in this series. Uh, Yeah, it was... Anytime you get Acuna up and in an opportunity uh, like that to tie a game, to go ahead, whatever it may be, this is a guy who told you again and again all season that like I can come through in this situation. I can steal 70 bags. I can hit 40 homers. And for, for him to ultimately um, go rather quietly in this series was a surprise, but same goes for a number of, of, of Braves hitters. When you have a five game series, 
it all comes down to how good is your starting pitching and and who comes up clutch in that in that lineup and they just didn't get quite enough of it and so Acuna it, it was a man off the bat um I thought it had a chance and and I think everybody else did until it nestled into the glove there the camera angle too also uh, enhanced it's every time definitely enhanced what looked like a sure like home run that was going to land 20 feet behind uh, the left center field wall now the amazing thing to me in game four was Ranger Suarez. Ranger yep. Suarez is one of those pitchers. There's a ton of guys that fit this sort of description. I see him as a, a mid-rotation guy that when you get to the playoffs, even knowing anything can happen, when you take somebody at this level, someone who's probably league-wide, just outside the top 50 among starting pitchers, if you ranked 150 starting pitchers, Ranger Suarez is somewhere in the 51 <laughs> to 90 range and that's a there's a ton of debate that can happen there i would never never trust ranger suarez in a matchup against a lineup that was as good as the braves were throughout this season i was sure this game this series was going to go to a game five i was certain of it because the pitching matchup skewed so heavily in favor of atlanta with spencer strider going but that's why they play the games and i think the other part of this is that over time the Phillies have improved this bullpen to the point where at least the guys coming out have great stuff. <clears throat> Command consistently maybe lacking across this group, but it worked for them. They were able to bridge the gap from Ranger Suarez, who gave them five great innings of one run ball with five relievers to get those last 12 outs. And that that was something that script wise, I had a hard time seeing going into game four. We talked about this on on deck before the series began was how the Phillies are the hardest throwing bullpen out there. And we are not accustomed to a historical narrative that the Phillies bullpen is something close to shutdown. Uh, but but here we are. These guys throw absolute gas. Uh, even the new guy, Orion Kirkering, can come out and throw flames. And <clears throat> when you when you look at the situation last night, I was I was sure we were going to get a Ranger Suarez getting one turn through the rotation and then see if the, the bullpen can uh, can can hold the fort down. And what he did was was pretty incredible. If you look back at uh, just the history he's had in the rotation, he really didn't crack into that rotation until 2021. Had a really, really good season then. Uh, and then last year was really good as well. And basically a full season sample in that rotation. And this year, it just it felt like he took a step back. It was, um, he's, he's a guy who was hampered, I think, too much by command problems. Uh, three and a half walks per nine innings is pretty standard for him across his big league career. <clears throat> and so... He's a guy who's going to run into some traffic. And in the postseason, if you run into traffic and you have Ronald Acuna up or Austin Riley, one of these righties who can feast off of left-handers, you're more often than not going to end up uh, with a little bit of a, a sideways number in one of these innings. And so for him to come out in these two starts he made in this series and go uh, pitch into the fourth inning scoreless and pitch five innings, one run, and have only one walk across those two was such a huge part of this. Um, and then only give up that one homer. Uh, man, this is this was Ranger at his best because you walk into the postseason thinking there's a legitimate opening in that number three starter spot, right? Like it, it, it didn't seem like it was uh, a sure thing. It would be Suarez. They had Wheeler, of course, and Nola in the first two spots, but then Christopher Sanchez would have been a fine option, I think, as that uh, as that guy. Michael Lorenzo, they left off the roster, but he was an option. And then Tywin Walker, of course, is the other one. Good options to have, and they went with the lefty. Uh, maybe to mix things up a little bit, and and it paid off in in a far better way than I even I even imagined. Yeah, I just I did not see the script playing out the way that it did. Now, I think there's a lot of ways you can try and dissect what happened to Atlanta. Is it as simple 
as it's a five game series. Anything can happen. Your your greatness over 162 games does not matter because if you take a very good team and a great team and they play five games, any combination of outcomes is possible. Like, do you think the the calls for the postseason format to be rewritten again are largely from people who just don't understand variance and how math works. It's just the result of playing playoff baseball this way. It's so different than how you get seeding from the regular season. I think there's a lot of just refusing to understand that because it is, or maybe your team it happened to, and so you, you're upset. I mean, Jason Stark had a really good story about this this morning, talking to winners and losers. He and Tyler Kepner to to see what they thought about it. And over on the Brave side, uh, Spencer Strider, he just he totally owned it. He said, no, it's not the format thing. It's about executing. I didn't execute. I didn't do enough. And I know if you're a fan, you're going to be extremely upset about the way this has worked out and you're looking for things to blame, but we can't be looking for excuses in the same way because um, you, you look over across at what Houston has done. They are in their seventh consecutive championship series. They had layoffs. They had a weird September. They had all sorts of, uh, of strange things happen. And yet they're back in the uh, the final four here. And so we see teams that are able to accomplish that. You can now put the Phillies in that same bucket of teams that are able to overcome whatever strangeness you have to go through in the postseason format. They've they've been a team that's that's faced uh, one game wild cards. They've faced three game wild cards. And this team this time you had to face a three game wild card against the Marlins, who is upstart hot team, um, and beat them uh, thoroughly, handily. And they had to face the best team in baseball, and they did it, and they beat them in four games. And so, and so there are there are there's got to be something to this October gene where you are just um, you're able to feed off whatever energy happens in that insane Philadelphia environment and and able to uh, to come through in that situation. There's some really good thoughts from JT Real Muto in that in that Stark piece. I encourage everyone to go read because uh, it is a different ball game in October. And I think we can accept that and maybe even encourage that that this this season that could be a slog at times, it's it's gone in October. We have we have packed houses almost everywhere. Um and uh, and just this strategy is completely different in October. Um, and the atmosphere, of course, is, is 100, 180% different, 180 degrees different. Um, and, and so I'm okay with that. I, I don't mind the variance. I think it's all right. I, did I pick the Braves to win? Yeah, I did because that's like where the smart money would be, the best team of baseball by, by a long shot this year. But ultimately, it comes down to who actually performs in a five-game series. And is it going to be all that different to go seven games in the series? I don't think so, you know? The, the Phillies probably could have taken one of those next three games. So I, I, I'm not really sweating it. Also, the Dodgers, if we want to throw them in here for a second, they had no pitching, and that's why they lost. It's very simple in their case. They had absolutely no pitching. They would have had to, uh, to hammer the D-backs uh, pitching with their own lineup, and they weren't able to do that. So that's why you're gone. Yeah, so I think the people that blame the, the long layoff, right, for the teams that get that by – you know, had a tweet that just went out last night after this series ended. The teams that have had longer layoffs are now 24 and 14 against their opponents. There's still a benefit to the rest. It's not the rest that's causing the bats to go cold. And we saw the a lot of the key bats for the Braves run cold in this series. We saw Dodgers key bats run cold in that series against the Diamondbacks. That just happens it's not a sign that the roster is broken it's not a sign of of tactical failure in some cases you could also make arguments that come playoff time that the teams that are all there 
maybe there's some that do outscout the other or they have a game plan that they execute really well that works. It's, it's possible. It, it, it's a potential endless chicken and egg debate. Did did team A fail or did team B succeed? It's like, well, it could be a little bit of both, right? That's always a possibility. And I think when there's nuance to these conversations, people really struggle. Uh, I saw several tweets suggest that the regular season is pointless and it's not. It's just a different format. The regular season is like running an ultra marathon. So all 30 teams are tasked with this 162 game season and several teams run the ultra marathon really well. They get to the postseason, but then it's a series of like five and 10 K's to get through <laughs> to get through the playoffs. And you could be a, an ultra marathoner that's better than everybody else in the field. But when you go to the shorter races, you might not win. Right. That's one analogy for it. But again, it comes back to just math and the way that a smaller sample of games can work. If you think the regular season is pointless, I should direct you to Premier League Soccer. There are no playoffs. It's 38 games. Most points wins. That's it. If you want baseball to be like that, <laughs> I got bad news for you. It's not going to change. This is what we're going to get for the foreseeable future. And there are so much you can enjoy about it. It does sting if it's your team that gets bounced. But someday, your team will be the unexpected team to get through. Someday. Hopefully you get to live to see it because it does take a while if you're a smaller market team sometimes to get back into the playoffs. Now, one other storyline around this Phillies team that I feel like is a little bit under discussed right now, Stephen. This one comes from uh, the baseball subreddit. There was a post that was just labeled Dave Dombrowski is a genius. I've heard a lot of praise for Phillies owner John Middleton for being willing to spend money. Obviously, a lot of credit to the players because they're the ones actually playing the games. But Dave Dombrowski, what he's done well to this point in his career has always been met with this criticism that, yeah, but when he leaves, the farm system is bad. And some of that's like that's very true, but some of that just looks right past the success. That the entire point of playing the game is to win a World Series. I see polls up every single day. Whose last 10 years would you rather have? The Red Sox with two World Series wins and some playoff misses, or the Dodgers with one World Series win and consistent consistently making the playoffs every single year. And you can argue either side of that, but Dave Dombrowski has won in small markets, won back with the Marlins all the way back in the 90s. He's won with the Red Sox, and he's looking like he's got a team that's got a clear shot to do it again here in 2023 with these Phillies. So do you think Dave Dombrowski deserves more credit as someone who's had a lot of success in some very different places over his time in baseball? I'm laughing because my last conversation with Dave was um, <clears throat> a, f a couple months ago. I was writing about the 2003 Tigers who famously lost 119 games. And he was the uh, GM architect of that very, very sad team. Uh, but no, that uh, so that was a lower moment. But even that team, you didn't mention the Tigers as a um, mid big market. I mean, it's a big city. Um, they were spending always, a lot in that they era. Certainly were. The, the Illich family at that time was spending a lot on payroll. He was able to turn a 119 loss within three years into a World Series team um, that came up short, yes, and continued to come up short over the next uh, several years. But he got the Tigers closer than anybody else have. And, and some of that is just convincing an owner to spend and convincing an owner to bring in stars. So we can joke all we want about how his whole game plan is to destroy the farm system and bring in at the expense of bringing in stars. But look, ownership wants to win a World Series. And if that's the mandate, then go do that. Now, is the mandate like the Angelos in... in in Oriole land, where they're saying we're not going to spend a $200 million contract on anybody, we just can't afford that. Look at what we'd have to change in the whole revenue model to afford a $200 million player. Um, and so, yeah, they're not going to, you know, 
they're not going to be able to, to operate the same way Dave Dombrowski will. And credit to him then for taking the advantages that his market or ownership provides him and and running with it because not everybody has that has that benefit. And so the goal is to, yes, be... Um, the goal for a lot of teams is to be a raise where you, uh, you're you a self-sustaining team, you don't pay anything at the major league level, you're doing it on the cheap. Or the goal for most clubs, I think, is let's be the Dodgers who can be the self-sustaining organization, have all this talent in the pipeline. You trade away some prospects and still have a top 10 um, system, uh, all while spending a bunch of money to keep Mookie Betts, to keep Freddie Freeman and all, all these other players. And so uh, as we look at it now, the Phillies and in, in, uh, Keith Law's preseason rankings were ranked 22nd in uh, their farm system rankings. Not the worst. They're not 30th. There are teams in worse positions. Um, and he's also locked up some of these guys long term. So had this series gone a different way, would you see an Alex Anthopoulos as a genius uh, headline on this? Yeah, sure. Because he's a genius in a totally different way in that they've created this core and kept it together for forever, the foreseeable future, in a completely different way. They've done it by locking guys into to long contracts early in their career. They're happy with the money they're making. They're happy with the stability. And uh, they're going to make their careers in Atlanta. That's fantastic. But uh, Dabrowski is taking what he has been given, taking the hand he's dealt, and he's he's played it to really the best of his abilities in, in now like five different cities. So you have to be pretty impressed with the, the Phillies roster and how it's performed and then to see the um, sort of the, the glee with which these guys play, you see, uh, you see the the quote that Bryce Harper had just the other day about how awesome Philly fans are. Like talking about how he always he always wanted this environment. Well, you've helped create that by having winning baseball. That doesn't happen without winning baseball. And yes, a, 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 a group of fans that are just total diehards. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I think there are people this morning who are sitting there saying well, Atlanta has to make some big changes. They have to find ways to to get around their October disappointments. And again, that overlooks the World Series title they just won a couple of years ago that that somehow is forgotten already. And I think the other part of it is it, it's so easy right after the loss to forget how how long this core is going to be together, right? Austin Riley got the big extension. He's there until 2032, at least 2032. Matt Olson's there until 29. Uh, they've got Rysel Iglesias still signed through 25. Acuna through 26 with options for 27 and 28. So he's there through 28. That's pretty safe to say at this point. Strider through at least 2028. Sean Murphy through at least 2028. Michael Harris through at least 2030. Albies through at least 25 of his club options like Acuna's are almost certain to be picked up. So that's really through 2027. That is an incredible core. That's the type of core you need to have in place 
to continue making runs at NL East titles, having first round buys, but at least get into the postseason consistently. Like if you're starting from there, even factoring in bad luck injuries, things that can happen any of those given seasons, that is a great foundation to work with. Now, I think the big question is going to come back to what do they end up getting out of their current group of pitchers and how do they add to that group? Is it via trade? Is it spending in free agency? And I think that's the more complicated question. But when you look at how active and how aggressive they've been and how successful they've been in so many different facets of their organization, you should have a lot of confidence in their ability to address that problem to some degree. They have given themselves a lot of flexibility with all these contracts too. Um, when you have cost certainty, which owners love to have, even if it's five, six years, even better if it's that far down the road. If you can say we have our 2028 center fielder, you know how much our ownership loves that stuff? That's fantastic. And so, and also if we keep, we're keeping our ace through 2028, um, that's great. Assuming Strider continues to pitch um, at this level, regardless of what's happened in the postseason lately. And so, yes, this is... This is a team that's operated unlike any other in locking up this core. And when you talk about, you know, we, we I think rightly criticize sometimes teams that that overemphasize the, you know, bites at the apple, bites at, at an apple type of um, analogy for the playoffs. Like all you need is a bite at the apple and you never know what's going to happen in the postseason because that can lead to you bringing in a team like, let's say the Marlins who are just, who are, who had, did not have enough firepower for, for the postseason against a team, um, like the Phillies. And that's not to say that they shouldn't have done what they did. Like they're, they're operating, operating a totally different way. But if your goal is to be the 2023 Marlins every year and just get a bite at the apple, well, good luck. Yeah. Maybe one year you'll have that, that sort of uh, Cinderella run. Anything can happen, right? The, the Rockies once uh, one, what was it? 23, uh, 24 or something ridiculous. Like um, yes, good to, you know, mediocre to good teams can sometimes do amazing things. But what you need to do is have, uh, well, the other thing, the 54% thing, I don't know if you missed it while you were out. Um, <laughs> you can talk like that. You can talk about bites at the apple. Um, but what the Braves are doing is they're giving themselves a bite at the apple every year with a team that can actually win the World Series without squinting, right? You don't need to do any, ah, yeah, if you know, Strider pitches well. They don't really have a number two. But no, this is a team that legitimately can look at them and say, what went wrong this year? You know, the starting pitching wasn't as good as it could have been. The offense went a little quiet in an important series. They just couldn't ca- quite catch up. And they caught like the hottest team in baseball right now. The Phillies are just operating on another level. They got great starting pitching. They got lineup that that did crazy things. Nick Castellanos just hit four bombs in two games. Like that doesn't happen every series, but it did. And so you got the wrong end of it. And you, you weren't able to come up, uh, come up with that series, but also you didn't have Charlie Morton, right? So you're going with Bryce Elder in game three. Things could have gone a little bit better. Some of your relievers could have been healthier, whatever. And so the Braves still are putting themselves in a position to be back next year as a World Series contender, win 100 plus games, you know, if they're, um, I think they're still positioned to, to do that. And that's great. So yeah, it is all about the bites of the apple. You need to get in the dance to win the thing. But if you can get in the dance every year and to be in a position like the Dodgers, like the Braves, uh, like the Astros are, that you can legitimately be looked at as a World Series uh, favorite or contender, then that's what you have to be doing. The, the goal is not to be sneaking into the playoffs, and they've set themselves up for, for a long time of being in the conversation as the World Series favorite. I imagine it's exhausting to run the full season, play as well as you do, and have it end so abruptly from a player perspective. Knowing how good you are, knowing that the window, while it's open for a long time, it can close 
faster than you expect. I think players have a pretty good sense for that. And, and just thinking about going through it again next year, like you, you need time to decompress before you can go into that and, and have, I think, the, the clear, like proper mindset for it. As far as the Astros go, let's shift the focus over to the ALCS for a bit. That's going to get underway on Sunday. Astros, Rangers. And it seems impossible, but the Astros are in the American League Championship Series for the seventh consecutive year. I know this is a franchise that because of trash cans that is largely just hated around the league. There's other reasons, but that's the main one that I think the typical baseball fan outside of Houston doesn't like this Astros team. This is why they're a modern villain in baseball. That level of success is remarkable. They've had plenty of players they've lost along the way who are part of that core. Guys like Correa and Springer, they have found ways to replace them. They have found pitching and developed pitching that didn't always come with the big prospect pedigree. They have been willing to go out and, and make trades, and they brought back Justin Verlander a second time. So I, there's there's a lot to to like about this organization. I wonder if this is the later part of their window. I think it's fair to ask those questions. There's been changes in that front office on multiple occasions now. Uh, when you look at their minor league system as it's currently built, it's harder to see three, four, five years from now the same sort of success. But the run they're having, if they're able to get another World Series before this window closes, I think as time passes especially, the respect for what they've accomplished will grow. Now, thinking back to this regular season, the Astros went 9-4 and four against the Rangers in the regular season. You and I both know that actually doesn't matter because it's a clean slate. It's a, it's a best-of-seven series. Rangers are, are on fire right now, playing extremely well, hitting everything. And I think the thing that maybe gets lost in the conversation between these two teams Levi Weaver did a great job uh, pointing this out in the windup this week. This is a nasty rivalry. These teams hate each other. And I think we're all about to get a really good glimpse of just how deep this rivalry actually runs when we see these teams square off in the ALCS. Yeah. What is it? The, um, the, uh, was it the golden boot series or no, that's not the golden boot. Um, I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, they had, they had, I mean, this is going back uh, quite a ways, right? I mean, this is, you go all the way back to the beginning. This is the, the, the Astros were an expansion team. The Rangers were a few years behind them as a relocation, the Washington Senators. There's a lot of history. They were in the opposite league. And then all of a sudden they weren't. They're in the same division right next door to each other. These cities have a, obviously a huge rivalry, not being far from each other, um, intrastate. But, uh, but yeah, the teams, you know, um, Jeff Bannister had a big moment with them. We saw earlier this season with uh, with, with Adolis Garcia and Martin Maldonado, I think, having a moment together. Yeah, this is going to be electric. It's it's going to be – I feel like it's going to be a bit like uh, Philly's Braves in the intensity that we just saw, which is great. Line them up because I don't, I don't think that Philly's D-backs has like a ton of history, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they, probably yeah, not the they same. don't. Not they, they can't. I mean, it's just the part. Part of it's the Diamondbacks haven't existed long enough, haven't been in the postseason long enough. They play at opposite sides of the country. They don't see each other that much. So, yeah, not enough bad blood there. There will be intensity because it's for a chance to go to the World Series. I don't think there's gonna be bad blood. So we needed that. So I guess this is why we scripted it this way. Um, but you're right. The Astros have put themselves in a position 
uh, winning seven of these in a row. I was just looking up Justin Verlander's stat page, which if you want to just go gawk for a little while at something, this guy, despite having like a mid-career significant lull, um, is pitching in his ninth CS, all of them ALCS. Um, and this guy's won the World Series six times, I think it is, if I counted right. Uh, absurd what he's done, but also absurd in a, in a, in a, in a tip of your cap way for the Astros to go back and get him this year to decide like, yo, we can't pay a 40 year old, what the Mets are about to pay him, let them do their thing. And then midsummer realize, listen, our rotation is not as dominant as we thought it was. We had an injury. We had uh, Urquidy not being as good as we were hoping he'd be. We had Christian Javier taking a slight step back in some ways, although some of the peripherals are still like, this guy is going to be incredible. Um, and of course we saw what he did last postseason combined no hitter. Uh, in the World Series, and we've got Framber Valdez, who's, who's an ace. But we have an opportunity here to give up Ryan Clifford, who's going to be really good, and Drew Gilbert, who we think is going to be good, um, if, to get Justin Verlander back for two years and pay him only like a pretty absurd rate because the Mets are willing to, to cover um, a really a large portion of all that. Uh, that's that's what that's like a that's a it's a as we talked about like a Dombrowski type of move. Um, that is a we have a chance to win a World Series and make ourselves among the favorites. Uh, certainly in the American League. Let's go do it. Let's do what it takes and we'll figure out the prospect thing later because you're right. The window won't last forever. It never does. But if you can, if you if you deem Justin Verlander good enough to go pitch your game one in the CS, then you make that move every time and, and the Astros are willing to do it. So, uh, you know, people will criticize them for generations about banging trash cans, but they have built... Uh, they've built a bit of a death star here in the AL and everyone is trying to catch up and, and the Rangers could be the team that, that does it right now because they have been building and building by spending gobs of money on, mm-hmm. on players. And that's one way to do it. Good for them. And then having guys like Evan Carter break through and immediately have a huge impact. We can get more into him later. Um, the impact he's had in every facet of the game, but um, this is going to be, this is going to be awesome. If there's, Last series, if there was one series I was I was keyed in on, it was Philadelphia against Atlanta. And this one, uh, if I had to only pick one of these to watch, it's certainly going to be the the Texas series. Yeah, and I don't I don't think that's intended to take anything away from what should also be a great series between the Phillies and Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks are a fun team. I think the the questions I have about Arizona are actually somewhat similar to the questions I have about the Rangers. I wonder how the pitching holds up for both of these teams. There's a lot of injuries that. It could actually lead to some guys coming back for the Rangers because of this timetable. We could see John Gray back. We could see Max Scherzer back in this series. That yeah. goes a long way. Nathan Evaldi has been fantastic. I think what's interesting about the Rangers is because of their their spending, their willingness to add at the deadline and add a ton in free agency the last two off seasons. This is more of a Philadelphia type bid, but uh, build. But they tacked it onto what was a really good group of players in their minor league system. So they are going to have some veterans over the next several years that should mostly age gracefully. I think guys like Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, I think are going to age really well because of the types of hitters that they are and whether they sustain a five-year window versus like a three-year window is probably going to come back to how well they develop some of the young guys. Evan Carter is just one example of top-level prospect that they've been able to bring up. Josh Young, finally healthy for a full season this year, is an impact guy for sure. You know, there's just a lot to there's a lot to like about this roster. My biggest concern is what happens in the games when the starting pitching doesn't give them at least five innings. That's where I think the Rangers could be vulnerable. The good news for Rangers fans, 
I think this lineup is capable of hitting just about anybody the Astros throw out there. So this could be just an absolutely wild series from a run production perspective. And yeah. I think that's pretty fun. If you're a neutral observer, you love that. If you're a fan of one of these teams, you're probably sweating every single inning throughout the entire series. And to those of you who are <clears throat> screaming into your headphones, that is not the golden boot. That's a soccer term. Silver <laughs> boot series. The silver boot series. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologies, guys. I know that one goes back uh, a long way. But you, I think you're exactly right. The The Rangers, the X factor here is the Rangers rotation. If they can get what they've gotten from Jordan Montgomery, which we've all had our our laughs about the Yankees trading away a guy who wasn't a big game playoff guy and then him turning into exactly that for the Rangers two franchises later. Um, and Nathan Neovaldi to to do what he's done. He's had such a good uh, postseason resume. That number three spot's so up in the air, right? It's Heaney, Dunning, all that. Well, if you can slot Max Scherzer in there at 80%, 85% and talk him into throwing two turns to the rotation, um, or if you get John Gray and either of those guys are fully healthy, well, suddenly... You can get really creative. You can get in, you know, do some really interesting things here. And um, they have options now if those two guys are healthy and or close to it. And I don't know if that means Scherzer coming out of the bullpen to gas it up for two innings. Probably not. Probably not the smartest thing to do when you've got a lot of money invested in this guy. And the Mets also have a lot of money invested in this guy. Come on, you got to think about the Mets investments right now <laughs> all over these playoffs. But um, but I don't. This the bullpen as good as they have been so far. Um, you just don't feel. You don't feel good about it if you're burning half that bullpen in one game um, to cover up for a two-inning start, right? For, a, you know, if John Gray goes short or if uh, Andrew Heaney has to go and only gives you one turn through the rotation or through the, through the lineup, that's that's a tough sell. So that's what I worry. We had to do our staff picks for the series and uh, we got to do our staff picks of the series. And I picked... <laughs> had to. <laughs> I, I picked the Astros because I think both of these lineups can can make lives miserable for the other pitching staffs. And if one of these staffs is going to crack, I think it's the Rangers. I mean, the, the odds are like double the the that of the, the Astros being the ones to really falter. Um, although it's certainly possible. But if let's say game one or game two, Montgomery or Eovaldi get beat. Um, that already, I think, puts the Rangers uh, back on their heels where they need, okay, we need an outing now from Heaney or a mostly healthy Scherzer or something like that. And if you get down, you know, two one or something, um, you're, you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're back to our starting to feel like they're against the wall against this type of team. So uh, that rotation, I think they need big outings again from Montgomery and Eovaldi as unfair as that is to say, because they've been so good so far. Yeah. I think one of the things that's sort of a, a signature of the Astros in recent years is the combination of the ability to, to do damage, but to do it without having a high strikeout rate, right? We yes. have a lot of players in this league now who can sustain great barrel rates and pop 25 or 30 home runs, and they do it with a lot of swing and miss. It comes with a high 20, maybe even a low 30% K rate. And yet again, as a team, the Astros have a top five offense, but they have a K rate under 20% as a group. And I think one of the things that separates you as an offense in October is putting pressure on the opposing team by putting more balls in play. Anything can happen when you put the ball in play. And I think that's part of why, you know, a team like the Twins, like the, think of it, think of their lineup and the damage they can do, which is legit, but the downside comes from when they start swinging and missing, the offense gets really cold really fast. That's what I think makes Houston so dangerous. And they have, I mean, Jordan Alvarez. Steven, if you said, who in the league is capable of matching a season like the one that Aaron Judge had a year ago? Jordan Alvarez is my answer to that. 
as far as the power and just the absolute just dominance. The approach is so good. I think the only hesitation some people have about Alvarez and making a prediction or a projection like that comes back to the health of his legs. Fortunately, his legs have been healthy ever since the the surgeries. The the concerns have been you know pushed further and further away. Um, but I think that's that's the main thing for me with Houston. They're very close. The Rangers offense by WRC plus fourth in the league. Astros were fifth. Uh, overall pitching, I always look at K minus BB percentage for a staff, and I realize mm-hmm. you, can, you can you can cherry pick and only use your better pitchers in October, so you don't necessarily get dragged down by your worst players. Houston fifteen point one percent, Rangers fourteen point three percent. That's the thirteenth and seventeenth best team. They're very similar in that regard, but I think the separating factor, aside from the swing and miss in the lineup being a little less with Houston, comes back to the number of relievers that I trust when the game is on the line. That number yeah. is much greater in the Houston bullpen than it is in the Texas bullpen. As we've learned from the Diamondbacks throughout this postseason, my trust level in a bullpen doesn't matter because your your wobbly relievers can right the ship at just the right time. They can execute. They can locate. They can get lucky. Like All of those things can happen. So those would be my reasons for leaning Astros, but I, I think it's going to be a great series. This one could easily go seven. The point I wanted to make about... <clears throat> What you said about the Astros and they're they're uh, they're going with guys with low K rate or having a, a overall put the ball in play mentality is they're able to do that to such an extent that they can they can stomach having Martin Maldonado in that which the the pitchers love every, like everyone will tell you up and down how good he is for that staff how good he is for that team he is a bad hitter mm-hmm. bad bad and he has a thirty four percent strikeout rate and so if you're running a guy out there who's below the Mendoza line doesn't get on base cannot slug for the life of him. Um, and and he strikeouts all strikes out all the time. You're running. This is not totally fair to him, but it's like kind of like you're running the old school NL days with with a pitcher in your lineup. Um, but they're able to do with the other eight hitters pretty outrageous things. And they have um, Yanir Diaz on the bench if you know he wants to slug a homer for them in the DH role or in a catcher role. They they have that, and so um, it's pretty impressive what they're able to do um, with that lineup, with especially the top five in that lineup. And then if you toss in. Um, Jose Abreu, who's usually been there five, um, has has really come on lately, come on strong. And, you know, Michael Brantley to be your on-base guy. They have sort of a little bit of every type of hitter, um, except it feels like the guy who just is all or nothing strikeout or homer uh, type of guy. Um, so the answer though, to your question, who can pull off the judge season, though, it's Nick Costellanos. No doubt. <laughs> if the entire season gets played in October, maybe. And then you're on Alvarez second. Yeah, you look at the body of work from the regular season. Alvarez, Altuve, Kyle Tucker, Chaz McCormick, and Yiner Diaz, along with Alex Bregman, six players that were in this lineup had WRC pluses of 125 or better. It is really hard to navigate a lineup where six players are 25% better yeah. than league average. And you know McCormick's a perfect example of guy that has exceeded expectations, whether that's you know the combination of his own hard work, player development, uh, scouting to get him in the organization in the first place. Part of what has made the Astros successful is not just having those superstars that have stuck around, but finding guys like McCormick and, and last year especially Jeremy Pena, guys who have been able to come up and fill those roles effectively when the likes of Springer and Correa have left uh, in free agency. I also think it's it's interesting when a team gets really lucky with uh, a mistake. I think Jose Abreu has proven to be a mistake. At the time they signed him, I didn't believe that. I thought it was actually an okay signing because of the quality of the contact he makes, the track record he'd put together. I thought he'd age more gracefully. 
He's shown up in a few key spots this postseason. I still think that's a little bit of a wild card. That could be a slightly easier yeah. matchup for the Rangers to navigate. It's like, don't let Jose Abreu hurt you. That's actually pretty tough. He's a guy that's been through it a few times, and I think that's part of what makes this team so dangerous, too. Other than Maldonado, there's just no there's no easy path there. And even Maldonado at least occasionally runs into a homer. Yeah. If you can just occasionally take a hack and drive one out of the yard, that's worth something. Yeah, I shouldn't have degraded his slug so much. He's got some. The other thing I want to point out with this lineup is um, one thing I really like to look at. I don't know if you do this, but um, hey, everybody, go to Savant, uh, Baseball Savant, and look up um, pitch arsenal stats. I love to see what guys are dominant against certain pitches. And uh, of the, well, actually, honestly, over the whole whole league, uh, the top three players against fastballs this year by run value, uh, Matt Olson at 24 run value, Kyle Tucker and Chaz McCormick at 22nd. So I love to look at that going into a series. Nick Castellanos also great against the fastball, uh, which you saw him turn on 100 miles an hour last night. Uh, pretty, pretty good. And so that's something that I like to check out for a series. See what, um, see what sort of matchups you have coming up. For instance, Jordan Montgomery doesn't throw a ton of fastballs. And so maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good, um, good matchup for the Rangers uh, against a team that will crush some fastballs. And uh, that's one of my favorite ones because McCormick, you would never guess that this guy's third in baseball or tied for second in baseball against fastballs this season and the run value against fastballs. Um, that's pretty uh, pretty special. And even if you sort this by uh, like run value per 100 pitches, so it's not so much like a cumulative thing, uh, the player in baseball with at least 50 play appearances this year with the most value against a certain pitch per 100, Jordan Alvarez in the changeup. Do not throw this man a changeup. It is not going to tail away far enough. And you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be chasing that ball down in the right field bleachers. I think from a, a game planning perspective, trying to get Jordan Alvarez out, I'm trying to trying to get any of the elite of the elite hitters out, even when you got guys with great stuff, that is an incredibly difficult problem. There's just some guys you can't really pitch to. So you try your best to pitch around them. You try to come up with something they haven't seen before. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the... Astros twin series, and I don't know if Eno mentioned it on 3-0 yesterday, but I think he was tweeting about it at least, was the Astros seemingly looking for Sonny Gray's sweeper. Sort of having a game plan of, of hunting that pitch, the most effective pitch in a deep arsenal. And my thought was, if you did something like that against a guy that, at least Savant says he's got six different pitches, if you hunt one thing like that, that might lead to some other problems. It obviously didn't in that particular case. The, there might be a lot of value in taking away the opposing starting pitcher's best weapon, right? And clearly the Astros have some guys that can destroy fastballs, but if they can also take your best breaking pitch away, that's a problem because a lot of guys don't have as much stuff to turn to as Sonny Gray does, and it still didn't work yeah. out for Gray in that matchup. Yeah, I was going to say another one of these guys who rates extremely well um, in run value per 100 pitches is um, Corey Seager against the curveball. And, and it's funny because you, you like think about this, and even in this, like my rental, mental Rolodex, I can see him smashing a curveball. Like I can see countless homers like, oh, yeah, kind of left that one hanging a little bit over the plate, and he smacked it in the right field seats. Yeah, that that, that tracks. Um, you know who got a great curveball? Justin Verlander. And so maybe he shies away from that and goes slider instead. Maybe he tries to ride the four seam high on Corey Seager. So if you start to look into that stuff and play around with it a bit, I think you start to see almost a cool preview for for what you're about to see on the on the field because, yeah, Verlander doesn't want to you know mess around and, and hit a hot zone with, with his curveball against Corey Seager. I'm not going to have a, a full explanation of why, because I don't think the why always matters when it comes to postseason baseball, even though I think the Astros have more to like on paper. I think I'll say it goes seven. I think the Rangers find a way to get it done. 
And it's just one of those amazing October series that we talk about for a long time. I guess it's just what I'm hoping for, just for something different. But it would not surprise me if the Astros do what the Astros do because there's such a well-constructed team for for all the reasons uh, that we've talked about. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Some other news to get to here before we go, Stephen. You and I were watching a little video yesterday. Rintaro Sasaki, if you've been following baseball news this week, you may have uh, heard... He's the Japanese Prince Fielder, at least by uh, by nickname at this point. <laughs> we had a, a news story on The Athletic. Melissa Lockard put that together. Sasaki, six feet tall, 250 pounds. He is a high school player coming out of Japan. He hit 140 home runs in high school, which is a new record in Japan. And he is going to come and play college ball in the U.S. instead of going pro and playing an NPB in Japan, which for a a prospect of this caliber is really unprecedented. So there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, a a six-foot-tall, 250-pound high school kid that crushes the ball is an exciting prospect for sure. I think it was ESPN's Kylie McDaniel had a a write-up and pointed to 70-grade raw power right now. It's 30 home run power in the big leagues. And I was like, that's okay. That's real power. That's what we're looking for. How do you project a player like this with that incredible raw power, record-breaking results, uh, a very large player for age 17 especially, and and someone who has questions about where he's going to fit defensively too? I mean, the good news is we get more time to see him before major league teams will you know spend some seemingly high draft pick on him. But what do you make of Rintaro Sasaki digging in a little bit this week and, and trying to get a sense for what he might bring to the table in the long run? Because all of this gives him a much faster path to eventually play in the big leagues. Yeah, I, my my initial take was, well, thank goodness we're going to get probably three years of him playing likely SEC ball. The the report so far at Vanderbilt is most likely landing spot. Makes sense. They are a powerhouse. They know what they're doing as far as pro development. Um, so it's going to be... It's going to be really interesting to see because there are guys 
you know, in every country who've tried to play baseball, who can hit homers, who have huge power and then strike out all the time. Oh, we just mentioned those type of players. And is that type of player uh, going to be real valuable in Major League Baseball? No, not really. You can probably find a, a way to live. I covered Pedro Alvarez in Pittsburgh. It ended up all being all he could do. And he ended up flaming out a bit after a, a decent, uh, nice start to his career. Couldn't really play third base and um, moved over to first eventually. So yes, there are, there are ways for this to go poorly at the same time he's 17 years old there's all kinds of reasons to be excited for what he can do this is not a guy playing terrible competition this is a guy who went to Shohei Otani's high school this is a guy whose dad is Shohei Otani's high school manager um uh uh Hiroshi Sasaki was the was the 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 father who coached um Otani I believe this is where Yusei Kikuchi also went to high school I may have been missing one other name anyway this is a, a baseball factory uh, in Japan that they know what they're doing. This is not some flash in the pan kid. This is uh, someone who's been really, really well known there and was expected to be the number one pick in the NPB draft and instead has decided to not put his name in and come to the U.S. So this is exciting. It's for college ball, right? This is a feels like a, a moment with like uh, college hockey where you get, uh, yes, I used to cover college hockey, uh, where you get, <laughs> you know, a, a, a top, um, a guy who's going to get drafted in the OHL draft or something and, and play in Canada instead decides to go college hockey route because he, he, there's something he's wanting there. And, and in this case, what does Sasaki likely want? Probably a faster route to Major League Baseball, right? Um, you saw, if I'm not speaking out of uh, out of turn here, Otani didn't play the requisite number of years to be able to be a free agent with a posting fee and all that, or, or with a posting fee. Um, he had to go through the international signing process. And so teams were limited in how much they could offer. Everyone could basically offer around the same amount of money. That wasn't going to be anything near what he's worth as a starting pitcher and a DH. Um, and and Sasaki is able to go now through a process where he goes to play college ball for three years. Uh, I think Kylie McDaniel reported, maybe somebody else, that I think he's not going to be able to start this coming year, it'll be in 2025, I think he starts. So hmm. 2027, I think, is when he, he would be eligible for the draft. Um, or spring of 25, I think, is, would be his first season. And then spring of 27 would be his, his junior year, and he'd be able to be drafted after that. So um, there is there are a lot of interesting things to, to follow here. But bottom line, how do you how do you grade a guy like this? We're going to need some more reps because what we're looking at right now is uh, YouTube footage, pretty good YouTube footage for high school in Japan. But, um, but he looks... Just, he looks like a first baseman, right? Mm-hmm. He's a big kid. Um, he's at six feet, 250 pounds right now. Um, we don't know how he's, his body's going to project over these. There's a lot of physical maturity that needs to happen. Um, he could muscle up. He could thin out. He could fit at third base eventually, right? We talked um, about Mike Moustakis didn't look like a third baseman, but he had a great glove. So I don't know if Sasaki's got a plus glove, a plus arm right now. That's all going to factor in. Could he wind up in first base and just it'd be great. Yeah. Like the Prince Fielder comp. Sure. That, that could work. Um, every team's going to love to have defensive versatility. So that's going to be something they, they look at as he gets more experience and we'll see what happens at potentially Vanderbilt. Um, but it's not out of the question that he could possibly go to another position. Um, and that's all just going to depend. I, I think more on the, more on the, what the glove and the arm tool looks like than what his size looks like right now. You know, a lot of us look different at 17 than we did at 21 at 22, whatever. And so, or even at 20, I guess, um, 21 probably when he would be drafted. So the good news, we're going to see him do this probably in SEC play for, for a few years. I'm not going to have to, we're not going to have to guess like we um, do for Japanese players, for Korean players when they're coming over. Of like, okay, what level of competition was he seeing? Um, you know, how good was the level of competition? Is he facing 80 mile an hour fastball, or like, you know, mid eighties, or is he facing high velocity? You know, he can get around on that, 
that 85 at the at the letters and and crank it for a homer some of these homers go watch them like first off a ridiculous number of homers but the way he's hitting them it's just like he's he's hitting them from his you know from the ankles from up at the letters uh he's a big lefty and he's got incredible power and he's hitting them at pro stadiums too so it's 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 cool to watch um but can he can he catch up to that you know 95 um up at the letters and we're gonna get a chance to see him play play college ball in a way that you can go see him every single time he plays if you want. It's not a big trip over to Japan every time you want to see him play. <laughs> and we'll get him on uh, ESPN and, and some of these other um, other you know, channels every once in a while. So they're going to have a very good read on this kid by uh, by the time he actually gets to be draft ready. And, and, and then that's, I think, the real, real blessing of all this, of it co- him coming over uh, selfishly for, for us as media and as, as teams, is they get a chance to see him a lot. Yeah, I wonder if you if you ask front offices, you know, what would you rather have a uh, half decade of professional numbers from Japan or three years in the SEC as far as getting a, a read on what you think a player is going to do? I'm, I'm curious to what side of that they'd actually be on. We've had enough players come over from Japan or you both are modeled. Both of those things are, are problems they have to solve. But if they actually had a choice from this starting point, what tells you more? about Rintaro Sasaki I don't know I'd like I'd like to know where that lands it's a good question but you're also just talking about completely different players at that point because you're talking about are you gonna be able to get a, a you know acquire a player at 21 having three years of SEC play or having you know five to eight years um in Japan when he would be in his mid-20s or later and so I think every team would say well I'll take the known quantity of a couple years of college play we saw him play a ton drafted him where he liked him and now we get to have our hands on him and develop him exactly the way we want rather than have him get into the middle of his career he is the hitter he's going to be because he's trained that way he's developed that way and it's going to be much harder to um have any hand in um in in you know or any impact really on on uh, altering his development where if you get him at 21 you still have a chance to do that as you bring him to the minor league so i think i'm guessing they all would pick that but the question as to like the level of play and how consistent it would be would be a really interesting one and we can throw that at keith next time yeah absolutely uh, other baseball news coming out of japan if you uh, you track these types of things there's a lefty reliever yuki matsui who's going to exercise his international free agency rights he'll pursue an mlb contract this winter so matsui will be someone we could probably see in a major league bullpen next season for all of next season over 200 saves he's actually 27 years old became the youngest player in npb history to reach 200 saves you know, watching what he was doing on video, I think the biggest question is going to be velocity. Is this yep. velocity going to be enough for him to maintain numbers anywhere near the 36.4% K rate he's posted over the last three seasons in Japan? Yeah, his numbers are, are fantastic and, and have been only getting better in the last three years as he um, has nosed his uh, K rate down, or sorry, his walk rate down. It was 4.4 per nine innings in 2021, which is a little concerning. 3.3 last year and just two, a flat two this year. So that's that's fantastic. If you pair that with an 11.7% uh, strikeout rate, which he's had over his NPB career, which is long at this point, um, that's great. This guy doesn't let a lot of traffic on. He gets a lot of strikeouts. But how is that going to play in the majors? I was seeing reports that He's in like the 91 to 93 range with his fastball. Coming from the left side, you could have some deception. You could have all sorts of different... Uh, arm angle stuff. It didn't look like anything too crazy as far as as angle as we were seeing on uh, TV. But w- what he has that's worked so effectively is his, is his off speed stuff. He's got a fork ball. He's got a slider, and those are great out pitches. I was watching uh, what appears to be his last out in um, 
NPB was striking out the uh, someone tweeted this. I'm sorry, I don't have their name in front of me, but the Coco home run champion of this season, Gregory Polanco, who I know well for his days in Pittsburgh, uh, he struck him out to uh, to to end his uh, likely end his NPB career for um, for Matsui, and so it can play. Is it is it closer stuff in Major League Baseball? I don't know. We we don't really have a comp for that right now. We don't have a five eight lefty throwing low nineties with great breaking stuff to to compare him to, and so. Um, I think there's certainly going to be value here. I saw a report. Um, I think it was Yahoo Japan who threw this out there that um, the uh, that the likely number he would be hitting was four years and 32 million. And so it's not a huge investment, but it's not nothing. And so I think teams are just going to want to see him pitch. So I'm sure they've done their work on him. I know for a fact the Red Sox have done that. I saw uh, Yahoo Japan uh, say the Yankees, the Cubs are among other teams uh, that did it. The Padres also visited in October. So they're going to want to get their eyes on him. How does it play against major leaguers? This, this is all modeled. They can, they can check all this stuff and the movement he has. But the bottom line is if he is a guy who does not walk and he can maintain some of these strikeout rates, even if the strikeout rates get shaved a little bit uh, from what he was doing in, in Japan, uh, this he has the potential to be a very valuable pitcher, uh, even if I don't necessarily think he's going to get thrown right away into a closer role uh, with that arsenal. It might, it might just work. We just haven't seen anybody like this very recently. Yeah, late innings seem likely. The closer yeah. role seems like a little bit of a stretch, but we'll see. We'll see once we get some more information on Matsui if he can actually take on a role like that. And listen, all, all credit and respect to Gregory Polanco, great guy. But striking him out with a you know with a breaking ball to to end a game doesn't surprise me all that much. And so, yeah, we'll have to see how that's going to play uh, against guys currently in the major leagues. I thought Gregory Polanco was going to be really, really good. <laughs> El, El Coffee. Oh, I was so excited about the, the nickname. I, I, I love coffee, so I think that made me really like want Gregory Polanco to be good. Greg Polanco, easy guy to root for. I once met up with him in Dominican Republic to uh, run through a workout with him at the side of like a the side of a road right by like a botanical gardens. Um, he was he was totally game. He was great, extremely friendly, uh, but things just didn't work out. And there's a crucial injury that hurt um, hurt his career, sliding into second base horribly, um, and hurt his shoulder. So things have not worked out. Things have gone pretty well over in uh, over in Japan. But uh, he never could hit the breaking ball very well. That's the point. Against lefties, especially. Mm. I am going to check eBay and see if I can find a Gregory Polanco Pirates jersey for an affordable price because the weekend <laughs> is here. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, or now it's known as X, you can find Steven at Stephen J. Nesbitt. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't done so already for the Athletic Baseball Show. We appreciate everybody who's done that. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. We're back with you next week.